Good to be with you on this Lord's Day as we're going to continue our series on the doctrine of the church. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. Please open with me to Matthew 18 as this morning we are going to consider the important topic of church discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. We always need the Lord's grace when we come to His Word, but as I read the text today and then as we pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination, please do pray with me that the Lord would help us today to think very clearly and carefully and faithfully from the Scriptures. Let's give our attention now to the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we seek the Holy Spirit's help this morning. As we want to think rightly and biblically and faithfully about how to love your church, to uphold your character, and to submit to the authority of your word. Please, Father, give us illumination today. Give us eyes to see, hearts to see to believe in lives that are ready to obey by faith what it is that your scripture reveals to us. Father, please keep me from error. Please use your word applied by your Holy Spirit to build up your church so that we together are conformed more and more to the image of Christ and are thus a light in a very dark and evil age. We trust that you hear us, Father, because we pray in the name of Christ, who is seated at your right hand, interceding for us. Amen. Friends, there are few ideas our culture is more confused about than the idea of love. We talk about love in nearly every area of life, and yet the more we talk, the more confused we seem to become. I'm sure that you've all seen uh, the bumper sticker on cars that is increasingly popular. The bumper sticker says, love is love. While that sentence is nonsensical, it does capture the culture's view of love. Essentially, love is whatever I say that it is. And my definition has no boundaries. In the culture's view, love never says, no, you can't go there. Love never says no, according to the culture. Love must be self-defined and completely open-ended, at least according to the world. And it's here that the world's view of love breaks down. 
the reality is that love requires boundaries. Love requires boundaries. Because I love my wife, I live with her and only her. Because I love my family, there are certain things that are beyond the boundary for me. Love, love requires boundaries. And so because I love my family, there are certain things that are beyond the boundary for me. Not all of those things are wicked, mind you. Would it be enjoyable to devote a large portion of my time to lowering my golf handicap? Yes, sure. But love constrains me, love for my family constrains me to use my time in a better way. Love, you see, creates boundaries within which we have to live in order for love to be true. This is not contrary to love. Boundaries are not contrary to love, but essential to it. Love requires boundaries. Which brings us to the subject of church discipline. Ultimately, church discipline is an expression of love within a congregation. Let's just make sure that we're all on the same page with a working definition of what we mean by discipline. So here it is. Church discipline is the regular practice of calling Christians to repent of sin and live within the boundaries of Scripture. Church discipline is the regular practice of calling Christians to repent of sin and live within the boundaries of Scripture. Because God loves His church, He does not let us make all the rules. Because God loves His church, He calls us to live within His boundaries. Through the church, God even corrects us when we fail to live within His boundaries. Far from being harsh or heavy-handed, church discipline properly pursued is the outworking of love. Now, before we go further, we ought to note that church discipline has two different forms. This is very important for understanding the rest of the sermon. So please follow me at this point. There are two forms of church discipline. You have to know the difference in order to, un- to make sense of everything else I'm going to say today from Matthew 18. There are two forms of church discipline. Formative discipline and corrective discipline. What's the difference? Formative discipline is anything a church does that encourages her members in godliness. Preaching, singing, practicing the ordinances, accountability, pastoral oversight, reading the Bible. All of those things are expressions of formative discipline. Through those practices, the church is forming Christian character in each of us. And in that sense, we are all under the formative discipline of the church every single Sunday, even right now. The life of the church is forming, shaping, molding our character. Formative discipline. Corrective discipline is much more specific and narrower. In this form, a specific member is called to repent of a specific pattern of sin. And if over time that member refuses to repent then the church would act to exclude that person from membership and therefore from the Lord's table. 
That's corrective discipline. The church is acting to correct my character in a specific way. Formative, it's happening right now, and corrective. It happens in more narrow instances. Now, these are, these are weighty things, aren't they? These are weighty things. It is no small thing to consider how a church displays God's holy love among her members. It's part of the reason why Charles read Hebrews 13 for us today. Because God's holiness being expressed in our actions of holiness with one another. This is no small thing. That's why we're devoting an entire subject, an entire sermon to this subject. The Bible requires us to display this kind of love. And healthy church membership requires that we practice this kind of discipline. We said last week, in in the first sermon in this series on the church, we said last week that church membership pictures what it means to belong to Jesus. Well, there's a question that arises from that definition, and some of you may have been asking it last week. In fact, some of you I know were asking it last week because you asked me. If membership pictures what it means to follow Jesus, what happens when a professing Christian stops following Jesus? What happens when a Christian begins to live in a way that is contrary to the Bible and then refuses the church's correction? What happens then? That's why we're considering discipline this morning. Because a healthy practice of church membership requires us to answer that question. And our text today, Matthew 18, provides the answer. Our passage this morning is perhaps the clearest instruction in the New Testament on how discipline is exercised among Christians. 1 Corinthians 5 is also a very clear passage, but we're in Matthew 18 because of Jesus' clarity in calling each Christian to display the love of God in this way. Part of our responsibility to one another is that we lovingly call each other to live within the boundaries of Scripture. That's part of our responsibility to one another as members. And specifically, Matthew 18 gives us three foundational principles for this exercise of love, for the practice of church discipline. Three foundational principles. Let me give them to you in advance so that it will serve you as you listen today. The first principle focuses on what we've already talked about, love. The second principle deals with faithfulness, even when that faithfulness is costly. And the third principle ties everything together with Christ's authority. So the three principles, love, faithfulness, and authority. Those will help us, they'll guide us as we seek to love one another even in the discipline of the church. That's where we're going. Let's start then with love in verses 15 and 16. Principle number one, love compels us to pursue the wayward. Love compels us to pursue the wayward. Jesus begins this paragraph by acknowledging a sad reality within the church. Christians sin 
against one another. It's a sad reality in the church. Christians sin against one another. But rather than resort to payback or pettiness, Jesus urges Christians to do the loving thing, to pursue one another. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The assumption of verse 15 is that sin is serious. So let's just put this on the table from the outset of the sermon. If left unchecked, sin will always spread in your life. If left unchecked, sin will always spread. That is a core biblical conviction. Sin does not stay in one area, it spreads. Cain was angry in his heart, and then he murdered, and then he deserted God. Sin always spreads. What's more, the Bible is also clear that sin sometimes blinds us. We are not always aware of sin's presence in our life. And therefore, we need one another's help. That's the logic of verse 15. That sin spreads, and when it spreads, it blinds us, and therefore we need one another. We need one another to help each other see. I need your eyes to help me see and follow the path of righteousness. Sin's presence and power requires the personal pursuit of fellow members within the church. Now, there are several important aspects to verse 15 that we absolutely have to keep straight. So let's just think about these for a moment. To begin with, Jesus is very clear that this pursuit is a personal responsibility. Or we could say an individual responsibility. I don't want to get too far into the weeds at this point, but the you in verse 15, the pronoun you, is singular. In fact, the you is singular in verse 15 and verse 16 and verse 17. The plural you doesn't come in until verse 18. From this, we, could con- we should conclude that the pursuit of wayward members is my personal responsibility. It's my individual responsibility as a Christian. It's something that individual Christians are accountable to God to do. As members of the same church, we are responsible to pursue a brother or sister who is living in sin. That's our responsibility. And this personal pursuit is expressed in the smallest possible circle, at least at the outset. Notice in verse 15 that your first move is to talk to the offending brother or sister. You see it? Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So your first move is not to tell your friend what so-and-so did. Your first move is not to share a veiled prayer request that exposes someone to condemnation. Your first move is not to get the leaders involved to deal with that offending person. Your first move is for you and you alone. You pursue your brother and sister. Far too often, this is where formative discipline goes awry. Listen to me. Instead of talking to one another, we just talk about one another. And that's very often where this goes off the rails. Instead of talking to each other, we talk about each other. And when that happens, love quickly evaporates. 
Listen, it's not very loving to find out that you've been the subject of other people's conversations, is it? It's not. But it is loving to know that your brother or sister cares about you enough to come to you directly and personally and lovingly. So this personal responsibility that belongs to each of us is expressed at least at first in the smallest possible circle between you and him alone. We should also note in verse 15 that the goal is growth through correction. The goal is growth. Notice Jesus' language about telling your brother his fault. You see that? The idea is to reprove or correct someone. The Apostle Paul uses this same verb in all of the pastoral epistles to describe the work of calling believers away from sin. And that's the, that's the sense here. In this initial stage of formative discipline, your goal is to help a brother or sister see where their life is out of step with the boundaries of God's word. You want to help them grow through correction. Now, let, let's make sure we understand that verse 15 is talking about correction in instances of clear sin. You don't follow Matthew 18 because someone has different preferences than you. This is very important. You don't rebuke a brother because he likes hymns and you like praise choruses. You don't do that. You don't correct a sister because her view of the millennium is different than your view of the millennium. You don't, you don't follow Matthew 18 in those instances. Those are preferences that call you to forbear with one another. Those are not instances of sin that call for correction. So this kind of personal This kind of personal correction is reserved for clear patterns of sin, not issues of preference. But even then, even even in those instances where correction is needed, the goal is growth. The goal is spiritual growth. This is so incredibly key. Please do not miss this point. Notice the end of verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother listens to you, you have gained your brother. So why do you go to a brother or sister to correct them or to reprove them? Why are you doing that? So that you might win them to godly fellowship within the church. So that you might persuade them. You're not trying to score points or to put them in their place. You are seeking to persuade them that life under God's word is better. You want to help them see what they may not be able to see. So this is a good rule of thumb. This is a good rule of thumb for practicing formative discipline. Before you approach a brother or sister, you have to examine your own heart. Before you do verse 15, before you follow verse 15, you have to examine your own heart. What are my motives in this conversation? To score points or to restore? What are my motives? Is my heart in the right place to approach this person? So that's Jesus' teaching on the first stage of discipline. It's a personal responsibility begun in the smallest circle and the goal is growth through correction. Now, if verse 15 
If verse 15 is, is successful, then love has had its effect. And a brother or sister grows in the Lord. But what if, what if verse 15 is rebuffed? What if your personal appeal is not received? How do we proceed then? Well, according to Jesus, love persists. This time with other people joining the appeal. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In a way, the principle of the smallest circle continues. You don't move from the individual appeal to the entire church. You take one or two other members with you. These members don't necessarily have to have witnessed the instance of sin, but they do need to agree with you that correction is required. And friends, this is the wisdom of Christ in leading His church. By including one or two other members, we avoid the pitfall of just chasing personal grievances. Just think about it for a moment. If I have to take other people with me, then that means those other people agree with me that the issue requires correction. But if I'm just trying to settle a score, if I'm just pursuing a personal grievance, then including those other members would expose me. And then those other members would call me to account. So do you see the wisdom of Christ in leading His church? He's protecting us. He's protecting us with this process. At the same time, Christ is also protecting the quest for truth. If the requirement is to take two or three, to take one or two other people with you, then that helps ensure that there's no he said, she said kind of back and forth in these moments of formative discipline. Why not? Because other Christians are involved and they add their voice to the situation. Again, this is the wisdom of Christ. He does not leave us in the dark where we have to guess how to love one another. He gives us clear instructions for how to maintain the boundaries of godliness within a church. So let's... Let's sum up this first principle. We are compelled by love to pursue the wayward. The purpose of our pursuit is growth. It always begins in the smallest circle. And it expands only according to Jesus' instruction. Brothers and sisters, that's formative discipline within a church. And, And hear me on this. It ought to be a regular feature of a congregation's life together. I I really want to stress this before we move on. I sometimes hear Christians talk about, quote unquote, doing Matthew 18. That's, That's the language that is sometimes used. We need to do Matthew 18. I'm going to be really honest with you. I am concerned about the mindset behind that kind of language. It comes across as punitive. And church discipline is never punitive. But more significantly, that kind of language of doing Matthew 18 to another person, that kind of language makes formative discipline sound extraordinary. Something that's reserved for rare occasions and 
and honestly something that I myself probably am not ever going to need. I wonder if we're missing Jesus' point with that mindset. The way that I read verses 15 and 16 here is that this kind of loving exchange is simply a feature of a healthy church that takes sin seriously and wants to love one another. Verses 15 and 16 read to me like love in a local church that cares about sin and wants to grow in godliness. I remember back in Arkansas, a fellow elder of mine came to me once and he corrected me about my attitude towards a particular church in our family. This brother discerned a consistent lack of charity in how I was talking about this particular family in the church. And he was right. He was absolutely right. I needed to repent of my attitude. I needed to change the way that I was speaking. That was formative church discipline. Did it rise to the ultimate level? Praise God, no. Did it require a meeting of the church? No. It was simply a part of this brother's ministry to me of loving me enough to help me see what I couldn't see. So I want, us to, I want to encourage us to reconsider this idea of quote-unquote doing Matthew 18 to other people as though it's somehow punitive or extraordinary or something that we don't ourselves need. Instead, let's embrace the reality of verses 15 and 16 that this kind of loving pursuit between Christians is our individual, individual responsibility to one another. And it's a responsibility that honestly we will all need at various points in our Christian life. We will all need this kind of love. Love compels us to pursue the wayward. And listen, sometimes the wayward is us. Sometimes the wayward is us. That's principle number one. So far, we've been talking exclusively about formative discipline. But as we said at the outset, there's also a second kind of discipline, corrective. Corrective. And that's where Jesus turns in verse 17. What if the combined appeal in verse 16 fails? What if a person refuses to repent? What should we do then? Principle number two from verse 17. Faithfulness constrains us to remove the unrepentant. Faithfulness constrains us to remove the unrepentant. With great clarity... Jesus, Jesus instructs us on the final stage of discipline. We bring the issue to the church. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Before we get to the specifics of what's happening, I want you to note, where the authority resides in verse 17. The authority resides with the church as a whole. This is one of the numerous reasons from the New Testament why I believe congregationalism is the biblical form of church governance. Jesus does not tell us to bring the unrepentant member to the elders or to the deacons or to the staff. 
No, Jesus tells us to bring the unrepentant person to the church as a whole. Just as we said last week with membership, the congregation is the final earthly authority in the matters of doctrine and discipline in the life of a church. The congregation is the authority. Since a church's membership is made up of believers, then every believer possesses the Holy Spirit and is entrusted with the responsibility of governing the affairs of the church. This is one example among many why we believe in congregationalism. Now, this congregational authority is going to be shepherded by the pastors since elders are entrusted with the oversight of the church. Elders are going to lead in any sort of disciplinary process. But even then, hear me on this, even then, elders do not have the authority of removing members unilaterally. That authority resides with the congregation. And this final congregational act within corrective discipline is the removal from membership of an unrepentant member. If a professing Christian refuses to repent of sin, then a local church can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith in Christ. A Christian who refuses to repent is giving the world a false picture of the gospel. A Christian who refuses to repent is giving the world a false testimony of what it means to belong to Jesus. And therefore, that person's membership can no longer continue within a body. In such an instance, an unrepentant member would be removed from membership since we no longer affirm their profession and excluded from the Lord's table since the table is participation in the body and blood of Christ. Friends, these are very serious things. I hope that you feel the weight of Jesus' words. If we want to take membership seriously, which that's what we preached on last week, church membership, and I heard tons of feedback from people saying, we want, we want our church to keep growing in that area. Okay, amen. If we want to grow in that area, this is the question we have to answer. These are serious things. Because these considerations are so weighty, I'm going to pause here and offer a number of clarifications about verse 17. I don't want anyone leaving today with any misunderstanding as to what it means for a church to practice corrective discipline. So we're going to pause our exposition and we're just going to clarify a few things. Let's not take anything for granted. Let's be as clear as we can. First of all, corrective discipline is always the last resort in a congregation's life. Corrective discipline is always the last resort. It almost goes without saying that there are two other steps before you get to verse 17. Jesus designed the process to be slow and purposeful and deliberate. A church may spend considerable time pursuing a wayward member before concluding that member is settled in his unrepentance. We had an instance of discipline before at a church that I pastored previous to this. We pursued the man for 14 months, pleading with him to return to the fellowship, 
to turn away from sin. Now, are there instances when a person might be removed from membership without a lengthy pursuit? Yes. Some kinds of sin are so heinous or committed so publicly that a church's action gets fast-tracked, so to speak, in order to clarify the gospel and protect the congregation. Sin that is grievously immoral or violent or physically harmful to other people may necessitate a quick response, particularly if the sin is publicly known. But the normal practice, the normal practice is for removal to be the congregation's last resort in discipline. Along with this, corrective discipline is always in response to settled unrepentance. It's always the last resort, and it's always in response to settled unrepentance. Please hear me on this. No one is removed from a church for sinning. Again, the sad reality is that Christians, all of us, will sin. So no one is removed from a church for sinning. Rather, removal is required when sin hardens into unrepentance. When a professing Christian has been lovingly confronted but refuses to repent, that's when a church has to take action in line with Jesus' teaching in verse 17. Remember, friends, the Christian life, the Christian life is one of continual repentance and faith in Christ. Sometimes we speak of repentance and faith only in the past tense. As though it was something we did one time way back when and now we're good. But the reality is that a Christian is repenting of sin and trusting in Christ every day of her life. To be a Christian is to regularly repent and believe the gospel. Not in the sense of getting saved over and over again, but in the sense of walking in continual faithfulness before the Lord. This morning... Before the service, I walk around the perimeter of the church and I always start that time of prayer the same way, seeking to repent of my sin and receive God's forgiveness so that I can stand up here before you with a clear conscience and open the scriptures. So repenting and believing are not past tense things we just do one time and now we're good. It's something you do every day of your life as a Christian. To be a Christian is to regularly repent and believe. And that means that a refusal to repent of sin, a professing Christian who says, I'm not going to do it, I know what the Bible says, I'm going to keep living this way, I don't want to follow Jesus. A professing Christian who says that is in serious, serious danger. The only recourse in that moment is to remove a person from membership since a congregation can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith in Christ. That leads into one final clarification. It's always the last resort. It's always in response to settled unrepentance. And the goal of correction, the goal of removal, is always restoration. It's always to restore. 
we talked earlier about how sin blinds us, right? Sin blinds our eyes to keep us from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sin blinds us. Well, verse 17, verse 17 is one of God's means for counteracting that blindness. Perhaps removing a person from membership is what the Spirit will use to get his attention and open his eyes and to bring that person to repentance. To say it a different way, a church does not remove a member in order to punish him. Rather, the church removes a person in hopes of seeing him restored to good fellowship. First and foremost with God, but also with the congregation as a whole. Listen, God disciplines those whom he loves, and so does the church. The ultimate boundary to a church's love is this. We would remove a person from fellowship with the prayerful desire of seeing them restored to fellowship. The goal is always restoration. Always. Overall then, why does a church act this way? Ultimately, the answer is to be faithful to the Lord. Jesus clearly teaches that this kind of love is necessary at times, and therefore, in faithfulness to His Word, we are constrained by Scripture to remove the unrepentant person. That reference to Jesus' teaching takes us right into the third principle. This is the foundation for everything that we've talked about this morning from verses 18 and 20, principle number three. Christ calls us to steward His authority. Christ calls us to steward His authority. After you read verse 17, there's a question that probably comes to your mind. At least it's a question that comes to my mind. Does a church have the authority to do this? We're talking about weighty, serious, spiritual matters. So does a congregation have the authority to act in this way? And Jesus' answer without hesitation is yes. Yes. Notice the authority entrusted to the church. Verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the you in verse 18 has shifted to the plural. This is the plural you, indicating that the church as a whole is in view. And the church is endowed with this kind of authority, with Jesus' authority. The teaching in verse 18 rests on an earlier passage in Matthew, chapter 16, where Jesus taught on the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You may be familiar with that passage. Peter, in Matthew 16, confessed that Jesus was the Christ and therefore the Lord. And in response to Peter's confession of Jesus' lordship, Christ entrusted Peter with his authority, with the keys of the kingdom, to bind and to loose in Jesus' name. That same dynamic from, verse, from chapter 16 is now at work in this passage. As the body of Christ, the church confesses that Jesus is Lord. 
And in response to that confession, the church is entrusted with Jesus' authority. The key, then, is stewardship. The church does not have an inherent authority, but a derived authority, flowing from its submission to Christ. And with with that authority, the church acts as Christ's earthly representative. Through his Bible-believing church, Christ reigns over and through his people. The result is that when a church acts in unity, the church acts with Jesus' authority. Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, let's not stretch Jesus' words beyond his meaning. Jesus does not mean that if two Christians can get together to pray for one thing, God is bound to do it. That's not what, that's not what he means. Verse 19 is not God's rubber stamp on everything a church wants. Rather, the point is to highlight the authority of a unified congregation. Remember, the context of this whole paragraph is the exercise of discipline. And when a church acts in unity, in discipline, the church can rest in knowing that God has given them the authority to do so. God's will, in other words, is being worked out in the unified action of Christ's church. God's will is being worked out in the unified action of his church. Jesus then reaffirms this point in the well-known words of verse 20. This verse is often misunderstood. So let's pay attention. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, There I am among them. This verse is often applied to prayer in general in order to encourage Christians that Jesus is present even in their their small group perhaps. But as with verse 19, please remember the context. The context is the discipline that a church is called to exercise. Why does a church have the authority to exercise this kind of discipline. Because, verse 20, when a church acts in unity, the Lord Jesus is present with them in the acting. Friends, this is an incredible privilege and and responsibility entrusted to the local church to act with Christ's own authority when we act in unity. When a church prays for the restoration of a wayward member, Christ is present with us in that prayer. When two members pursue a wayward Christian, Christ is present with us in that pursuit. And when a church takes the final step of removing an unrepentant member, Christ is present with the church in that somber moment. Do you see the both the privilege and the responsibility of belonging to the body of Christ? Church membership is no small thing. Belonging to the local church is no small thing. When Scripture calls us the body of Christ, it's more than a metaphor. It's an expression of our identity and therefore our stewardship. 
to gather under the lordship of Christ, submitting to his word, practicing his ordinances, expressing his love, caring for his people. To do those things is to exercise Jesus' authority on earth for the good of his people. It's not a small thing. Angels long to look into what we are doing. We are stewards of Jesus' authority for His glory and for the good of His body. And friends, that stewardship acts like a guardrail on the practice of discipline. We are not Christ. We are only His representatives. So our stewardship is like a restraint that keeps us from misusing the practice of discipline. The stewardship, this stewardship is like a guardrail. The authority is not ours, but Christ's. The people are not ours, they're Jesus's. And so that stewardship guards us. And it helps us remember that we ought to be a humble people. Whenever we think about church discipline, our first impulse ought to be humility. Humility. How can I put your interests ahead of my own? Am I willing to receive the correction of a fellow Christian who is responsible to keep watch over my soul? When a church does have to remove someone from membership, is my response to examine my own heart, remembering that the Bible says, he who thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall? Humility. Humility. To embrace the teaching of Matthew 18 is to embrace the humility to submit myself to the care of others. We are only stewards. We are not Christ. Along with humility, we also ought to be a patient people when it comes to discipline. We ought to be patient. Jesus Christ is Lord of all the earth. He is Lord of His church. He is Lord of the nations. He is Lord of all things. And in exercising His Lordship, Jesus Christ is unthinkably patient. Did you know that every single sunrise is an expression of Jesus' patience to a wicked world that only deserves His judgment? The world does not deserve another day. The world deserves judgment. And yet, Jesus causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. Jesus Christ is unthinkably patient with a world that defies Him. So as His body, what should be our first impulse in response to someone who wanders from Christ? Patience. Patience. Pursuit. Appeal. Plead. Pray. Love. Patience. Might the situation reach the point where we have to remove that person from membership? Yes. Matthew 18 is very clear. That point may come. But brothers and sisters, if we ever reach that point, when we reach that point, I pray that we would always reach it with tears. With tears. I pray that we would reach it having displayed the patience that Jesus displays every second of every day to a world that defies him. said it a bunch of times already but this is a weighty sermon if we're going to practice membership we got to practice this so it's a necessary sermon but it's weighty 
I pray that it's been clear. I hope it's been helpful. I want you to know that on Wednesday evenings during the entirety of our church sermon series, we're reviewing the previous week's sermon and we're taking time to answer questions. So if you're able to come on Wednesday night, it's a great opportunity to think together more, to ask questions, to pray together. As always, if you can't make it on Wednesdays, the elders are available this morning and throughout the week. We, we would love nothing more than to talk with you about how we can all pursue church biblically together. We want to have that conversation. As we close today, I want, I want to zoom out just a little bit in Matthew 18. And I want to put this whole discussion of discipline in a, in a broader perspective. It's always good to read the Bible in context. God doesn't give us verses or paragraphs in isolation. He gives us His Word in context. So it's always good to read the parts in light of the whole. I want to do that. To that end, look one passage above our text. One passage earlier. Verses 10 to 14. It's the parable of the lost sheep. What is God the Father like? He is so persistent in His pursuit. He's like the shepherd who leaves the 99 in order to find the one wayward sheep. That's the character of God. He pursues the wayward. Friends, that's the heart behind Jesus' teaching on church discipline. Those two paragraphs go together. When we pursue the wayward, we are living out the character of God to leave the 99 and pursue the one. Church discipline is not punitive. It is not about making sure everybody stays in line or else. Ultimately, church discipline, both formative and corrective, is an expression of God's love for God's people through God's people so that we all make it to the heavenly city together. The Father loves His children so much He doesn't let them wander. He pursues them. And as the body of Christ, we are called to do the same thing. So may God give us grace to steward the authority of Christ and to do so in a way that displays the heart of Christ for the glory of God and for the good of the church. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, help us. We know that the Lord Jesus loves His church because Scripture tells us that He laid down His life for His bride, the church. And because Jesus loves the church and shepherds the church and protects the church and cares about the church's holiness, we want to love the church too because we want to love the things that Jesus loves. Help us, God, to continue to grow as a congregation in following the Scriptures, in practicing biblical love, of living within the boundaries of your word because living within the boundaries of your word is the best place to live. Help us, God. We pray for the humility necessary to receive your correction. We pray for the patience necessary to bear with one another. And we pray in all of these ways that the love of God would have its full effect and each person here would reach the heavenly city safe through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.